Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. I went to college in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, grew up in Jacksonville, then went to Memphis for college. And uh, so one very obscure stretch of road that I know pretty well are the back roads between Memphis and Jacksonville. Uh, a section that weaves you through different parts of Mississippi and most a large uh, stretch of rural Alabama. Uh, it's technically a 13-hour drive. I don't want to tell you what my record as a college student was making that drive, but it was impressively under 13 hours. Um, but one of the sites, if you can refer to them as sites or landmarks that you'll pass as you go through the back roads of rural Alabama, is a sign that a church has put up by the side of the road. It's an old sign by the looks of it. It's pretty weathered and, and faded. It's a white sign, and next to the sign, there's a cutout of Satan himself. And next to, this, on the sign, next to Satan, it says, go to church or the devil will get you. Go to church or the devil will get you. Uh, Matt, as you think through web design and our our, uh, you know, advertisements. Take note, that's one way we could go. Um, but no, that's, we can all look at that and go, okay, this is uh, in some ways patently ridiculous uh, as a way to advertise your church. One, I mean, it does represent just how much our culture has shifted, right, from uh, what it likely was when there was a common uh, kind of worldview spiritually that you could draw on to advertise for your church. Uh, but even more than that, Right, it represents uh, a motivation for church engagement that's built on guilt, threat, and fear. Right, and it, it says uh, that the motive for attending church, the motive for being involved in a church, uh, is to avoid uh, being gotten by the devil, whatever that means or looks like. And this, although you know that's probably not something that's going to make it onto the front page of any church that you would want to go to. Um, but I think it does strike uh, a little bit closer to home than we might want to admit, right? That oftentimes our orientation to the church and our means of engaging people to engage with the church does come down to uh, either guilt or shame of what might happen if you don't or what might be true of you if you don't, or promise of reward on the other side, right? The carrot or the stick. If you go to church, uh, good things will happen to you. Your life will be full. You'll be blessed. Right? But it shows uh, that, that we're trying to drive people towards church, that engagement with the church is more of a push than a pull. Right? It's more of something that we have to be talked into doing uh, instead of something that naturally gravitates us towards involvement because there's life and grace and meaning to be found there. You may have experienced a pastor, hopefully not me, uh, but maybe, uh, I'm not, I try to be above it, but maybe not, uh, trying to manipulate you either with uh, threats or guilt or fear or something like that to engage more deeply in the life of the church, right? Sometimes as a pastor, you feel like a dentist uh, telling people, you know, you really ought to be flossing. 
seven times a day. No, what is it? Seven times a week. That's it. Um, I do it. I promise. Um, or a doctor, when you sit down with a doctor and they ask you, you know, how's your diet been? And you feel that, oh, yeah, no, no, I go every Sunday. I, I eat only, I eat plenty of vegetables, right? It's one of those things that we engage with because we know we're supposed to instead of this natural kind of radioactive draw that the church in the first pages of Acts clearly seem to have. You know, another misunderstanding among the many in that go to church or the devil will get you sign is the notion that church is something that you go to. Right? The church is an event or a, a business that's offering services, and we go to it. Whereas, from the New Testament perspective, it's not so much that you go to church as you are the church. Right? If you belong to Jesus, if, if by repentance and faith, like these early, uh, early Christians, you place your trust in Jesus, the church becomes who you are. It's an identity marker that I am, as we just sang, the beloved of God included in his people. And that it draws us towards involvement in the people uh, that we've already been declared a part of. You know, Acts chapter 2 is really one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible. Uh, and if, as, as we do, if you believe it to be true, it's one of the most exciting chapters in all of human history. Because think of what's happened uh, already here uh, in Acts chapter 2. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God himself coming to make his life with human beings like you and I. God himself uh, ceasing to be merely a God in heaven, or even ceasing to be the son of God who's, who uh, is known to us ex externally, but by this Holy Spirit being God with us, God within us, God's power and his presence, ours forever. So we've seen that, then we saw the miracle of 3,000 people hearing the gospel in their, in their own languages. So people, uh, as we talked about last week, people, uh, the, the way Revelation describes it, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation beginning to hear the good news and being woven together into one multicultural people of God. And now, here at the end of the chapter, the birth of this church, uh, a people uh, living their lives who were strangers just a little while ago, right? Before coming to faith, remember, these were people of different languages, of different cultures, and utterly strangers to one another, who are now living their life together in a way that's described, in a way that the ancient people would only have described family living together, sharing their possessions, sharing their homes, sharing their meals. What they're saying is this is a group of strangers and even enemies who are now living together with one another like family. This is, uh, the church itself is a miracle. The church itself is a part of the incredible good news of what God is doing in the world. And so it will do us well in a world where the church seems uh, oftentimes to be bad news to so many, where the bad news of the church's failures are ever in front of us, and where many of us in our own lives are aware of them. We want to look at the reality that the church is good news. Not only do we have a message of good news, but we actually are supposed to become good news for one another and for our communities. And so I want to ask a couple questions of this text, really just two. Uh, who is this early church? Who makes up the church? And then secondly, what do they do? What are they called to do as a people? First, who, who's included in the church? And the short answer, uh, I'll have more to say about this, but the very short answer is absolutely everybody. 
right? That there are no boundaries on who is potentially included in the love of God in Christ and who is potentially knit into the people of God, his church. It is a free and open invitation that goes out. Remember what uh, Peter said at the sermon at Pentecost, right? The promise is for you and your children, all who are near and all who are far off. Right at the end of this chapter, we see that God's adding to their number every day those who are being saved. Right, that though it is a tight-knit family, it's an open family, that every man, woman, and child is invited to repent, to believe, and to come and belong and become a member. You know, when historians, we've hinted on this a little bit already, but when historians talk about what enabled the explosive early growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire, one of the things that they point to is the radical inclusivity of the church, right? You know, they ask the question, why in an ancient world, in ancient Rome, when you had, if not thousands, at least many, many hundreds of different religions and philosophies and ideologies vying for, uh, for adherence, vying for people to believe them, why did this one seemingly unlikely faith explode and take off in such a way that it outlasted the Roman Empire itself. And one of the things that historians almost universally, believing and non-believing, would say is that part of the incredible explosive power of Christianity was that all people could belong, right? You had, you had uh, philosophies in ancient Greece and Rome that were really only open to the most educated and highest classes of people right? And only those kinds of people belonged. And then you had folk religions, right? Deities of this and that that really belonged to the common people, right? You had uh, deities that were, that were followed most closely by slaves and foreigners. And then Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 this is a faith for everyone. Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free, everybody can, can come in on this faith. It was radically invitational and inclusive. And even uh, by the end of the book of Acts, we are going to see stories of some of the most strange and unlikely people coming into the church, right? This, this church that starts off as an entirely Jewish group of Jewish converts to Christianity. We're eventually going to see not just Jews, but Gentiles. In fact, the Roman centurions and soldiers who were the oppressors to them, who were those who... Uh, extorted them for taxes and were rough and violent towards them, we're going to see them coming into a church together. We're going to see um, an Ethiopian eunuch, so somebody from uh, the northern areas of Africa, coming into the faith. We're going to see Paul, a persecutor of Christians, come into the faith. We're going to see uh, him working to get the message of, of the gospel to Roman rulers, trying to get the message to Caesar himself. We're going to see uh, men and women, rich and poor, slave and free, all coming in together into one church. And that whether we are talking about the first century or the 21st century, this has always been one of the most powerful elements of the gospel, is that it has a witness to the world. And a part of its witness to the world is that in a divided and stratified society, in the church, it is not that way, or it should not be that way. Here, strangers become family, enemies become family, and we live life together as one new people of God, no longer defined by those things that might keep us apart, but defined by those things that draw us together. 
You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that there should even be a church. If you remember uh, one of Peter's exhortations at the end of his sermon, after calling uh, all there to repent and to be baptized, he said in verse 40, save yourself from this crooked generation, right? The, the world in which you live is bent, it's crooked, and you need to be saved from it in a way. You need to learn to live a different way, learn to come out from the, the, the bent and warped world that you live in. And yet what we don't see, we don't hear these early converts saying, okay, and then fleeing to the wilderness, right? They don't say, okay, you said flee this corrupt generation. I'm going to go become a hermit. No, it becomes a communal project, right? It's not fleeing one corrupt society by going and being all alone. It's saying, no, no, if we're going to flee a corrupt society, we're going to do it by becoming a better society. We're not just going to flee a corrupt culture to go become an, an isolated culture. We're going to build a new culture, a new way of being friends, a new way of being in fellowship, a new way of loving one another and sharing our lives. But it is going to be a communal project. We are going to do this together in relationships. And notice that even then, uh, those people in relationships, they didn't then go into the wilderness and form a sect where they didn't engage with anybody else, right? There, that was a pattern in ancient Israel. We had the Essenes, who were a group of people who resisted Rome by going out into the wilderness and just devoting themselves to purity, devoting themselves to keeping their faith alive and not engaging at all with the non-believing world, right? That's the group of people that preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you learned about those things being found, uh, scrolls of scripture found out in the wilderness. It's because they went, went out into the wilderness to say, our, the way we're going to survive, the way we're going to maintain our faith is to get away from the world. But no, what we see these first Christians doing is living their lives together in fellowship, right in the midst of their world. In the temple, which was public space, where they would have been seen and observed by everybody around them. And then in their homes, in their neighborhoods, in their communities. So they did cling together, but they stayed. They stayed there in Jerusalem and then eventually permeating the other cities of the Roman Empire. And so what we see is the church, radically inclusive, knit together in a new family, devoted to Jesus, and yet staying, living their lives together right there in the midst of the world. And so we would do well to ask, we would do well to ask if salvation is meant to be a community project, right? If it's not meant to be something that we just do on our own. And if it's meant to bring us together as people, right? If it's meant to, to take people who in a divided world are prone to just kind of go their own way and knit us together in what we in our church call an uncommon fellowship, an uncommon family of faith. How do we do that together, right? How do we overcome those things that might naturally pull us apart and to be a faithful and healthy and vibrant family of faith. Well, we can do well to look at this early church and to see how they did it. And what we'll see is that they thought of their calling uh, along three main lines, right? That, that as they left this crooked generation, they were ordered their life uh, in an attempt to order their life rightly or straightly. They ordered it around love, love of Jesus, we're going to see what that looked like, but, but God through Christ was at their center. Loving one another in fellowship and sharing their lives, and then loving their neighbors by facing outward. 
that it was a community knit together by love. First, they were knit together in loving Jesus. Look what it says in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. A couple things for us to notice here. First, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right, that is, uh, you know, before the New Testament was written, the access that these first Christians had to the life of Jesus was through the teachings of his apostles. Remember, we saw in Acts 1 when the, uh, when the apostles were setting out to elect a new apostle to join them after Judas's betrayal, and they picked Matthias on the basis that he had known Jesus and he had seen the resurrection. And so to be an apostle was to be someone who carried this message of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, into the next generation of the church so they could faithfully tell the story of who Jesus was and what he did and the hope that he brought into the world. And the way that this church oriented their lives around Jesus was to orient themselves to his teachings. So this was a learning community, right? It was a group of people who were committed to learning who are committed to, to looking to Jesus to learn how to live, to looking to Jesus to learn uh, what it means to follow him. And they did this together in fellowship. Together they sought to follow Jesus. I was uh, reminded, remember that great story uh, when Jesus in the Gospel of John goes to visit Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And Martha, were, as these earliest Christians did, and seek to learn from him to hear his voice, to follow him, as we learn about him from his word, as we let him order our lives, and as we sit at, our, at, his, at his feet. You know, in the church, uh, there's an awful lot of Martha work that needs doing, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that it takes to pull off being the church. Uh, you may hear this uh, regularly from me when I ask for volunteers, right? We, I got some round of applause from uh, Kyle for volunteers, right? Uh, stuff needs setting up. Kids need teaching. Uh, groups need leading. Outreach efforts need spearheading, right? There's all sorts of stuff that needs doing. And church is meant to not be a spectator sport, uh, but a team sport where we all do engage with it. But there's a temptation in the church for the Martha work to eclipse the, the Mary posture, that says, no, no, we're not loved by Jesus for the stuff that we do for Jesus. We don't belong in the church because God wants to use us to do stuff for him. Jesus invites us to come and to sit with him, to look to him, to learn from him, to be discipled by him, which means to learn from him how to live our lives. Friends, uh, you know, if the last uh, bit of our history has taught us anything, it's that every one of us is being discipled by something in our lives, right? If being discipled means looking to someone to learn how to live, this world is making disciples out of all of us, right? Everyone has stuff that we turn our attention to. Everyone has voices that we bend our ear towards. And in the church, the voice of Jesus is meant to be the voice that disciples us. And that is uh, maybe the most fundamental posture that contributes to the church's unity. 
right? It's that the church is a group of people who try to tune our ears to hear the same voice so that we're being discipled in the same direction. And there are no shortage of other voices that are offering to disciple us. And those voices, if we listen to them deeply enough and long enough, will eventually disciple us into tribes, right? That's what, you know, tribes are made by those uh, kind of common objects of loyalty and love, common voices that we listen to. And there are no shortage of voices left, right, and center that offer us a narrative that would disciple us into its image. And guys, this may be, I'm not just speaking narrowly to our church, but maybe to, to the church in America, right? If you are being discipled by cable news, which is what it's doing to you, that discipleship will only lead you further away from your brothers and sisters, perhaps who, who listen to different news, right? If eventually the voice of Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson is louder in your ear than the voice of Jesus, that is going to move us in a direction that moves us apart from one another. And so to be disciples of Jesus in fellowship with one another means that we're willing to ask ourselves, who are we being discipled by? And are those sources leading me to greater love for my brothers and sisters in Christ or less love for my brothers and sisters in Christ? And if the sources you read, the channels you watch, the blogs you read, if you find them stirring up in you less love for your brothers and sisters who may disagree with you, then it's discipling you away from one another. That we need to tune our ears and it's gonna be hard. There are louder voices in our world. The, you know, the voice of Jesus in your life is a relatively quiet voice. He whispers more than he shouts. And yet it's his voice that we need to tune into. I don't know how many pastors that I've talked to over the last year that have said basically the same thing. You know what? We don't have a chance because our people, but these other pastors, not me, of course, these other pastors, my church listens to me for 30 minutes a week. And they listen to Fox News, CNBC, um, whatever the news source, 20 hours a week. What hope do we have for discipleship? What hope do we have for formation in the image of Jesus if we have such a limited footprint in one another's lives? And so we as a church have tried to order our life around the word of God, to order our life around the voice of Jesus. And here's how, we, here's how we've done that. It, no matter how much ordering of our lives we do around this, it can't match uh, 24 hour a day uh, you know, click of the mouse button access. But what we're asking you to do in order to order our lives around the spoken word of Jesus is to engage in gathered worship where we all sit around one message and hear the word preached together, to engage uh, with our daily Bible reading rhythms, right? I remember talking to a new member at our church, uh, this is a year or two ago by now, um, who said they had just started doing our daily prayer and Bible reading. And his, uh, what he offered was just so sweet to me. He said, you know what? I have come to realize that if I pray and read the scriptures before I pick up my phone and read the news or scroll Twitter, my day goes better. Yes, that is, 
I don't make many guarantees from up here, but I can guarantee you uh, that your day, the posture of your heart will be better if it begins by tuning in to the voice of Jesus. And then, uh, and then finally, uh, to order your life uh, through the preached word, through the personally prayed uh, word in our, our daily reading, and then in a growth group where you gather together around a table and chew on God's word together and seek to apply it together. It's one way that we're working to bend our ears in community to hear the voice of Jesus, to hear that whisper over and above the shouts of our world. And I would ask uh, that you bend your ear in the same way to hear Jesus's voice. The other way they orient themselves to Jesus we see is in worship, uh, which I won't dwell on because I touched on it a little bit already. But when it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, uh, that's different than just saying they broke bread and they prayed. It's saying they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. Later, it's going to talk about the way they shared meals, ate in each other's homes, all that. But this is the liturgical breaking of bread. This is the breaking of bread at the communion table. This is the prayers that they pray together in concert and worship. This is saying that they prioritized gathered worship. So if we said the church isn't something you go to, it's something that you are, this is still a people that went to church. Uh, they gathered together, the church gathered together to worship Jesus. So they learned from him and they worshiped him in love. Secondly, they loved one another in fellowship. The word here that's translated fellowship uh, is the Greek word koinonia. Uh, and koinonia, uh, fellowship is kind of a bland word, if you ask me. It, it, it's, uh, it's come, I think, almost to sound like a word you hear in church and not really anywhere else. Uh, when was the last time your boss asked you into his office for some fellowship? Uh, or some buddies asked you who weren't Christian buddies if you wanted to meet for a beer and some fellowship uh, at the bar? You know, no, it's, it's kind of become a churchy word. But koinonia is a supercharged word. It is a word with power. It means, uh, it does mean fellowship, uh, but it's sometimes translated participation or sharing in. And the way that it's used in the Christian vocabulary is to say that our fellowship, our participation, our sharing in life, is actually with God first, right? That through the cross, we become people who have fellowship with God. So you're in koinonia, you're in, in active participation and sharing in the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's downstream of that, that you have koinonia, you have fellowship with one another, that you have real and living fellowship, not only with God, but with your brothers and sisters in Christ. They were devoted to this fellowship. It took work and commitment, but they gave themselves to it. And we're told that they were together in everything. It says they were together. That means later it's going to talk about the stuff they did together. But here it just says they were together. They were uh, locked in. They were aligned with one another in koinonia and sharing in life and in fellowship. And that is the power of the gospel to weave strangers into koinonia into real, abundant, lasting relationships that are safe and can be trusted in, can be rested in, can engage with one another, that we can live our lives together. You know, one of, my, uh, one of the best voices that spoke to this, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, uh, a preacher, uh, primarily active in the late 1930s, but mostly in the 1940s and 1950s in London. 
he was Welsh. Um, so if you ever listen to his audio tapes or recordings, it sounds like he's from Middle Earth. Like Welsh people have this lilt to their voice that makes it hard to understand. Um, but he was a wealthy upper-class Welshman who was a doctor who became converted in the 1920s uh, and then became a preacher uh, in London. Uh, think about what was going on in London during the 1940s. So this is uh, in London during much of World War II. And one of the things that he notes is that in his, uh, in his church during those wartime years, uh, people would gather from every one of the allied nations. That Christians from Canada, the U.S., Australia, from all of these allied nations uh, would come together and they'd worship on Sundays. And uh, he would note that as they came, oftentimes they would ask to meet with him after, to be prayed uh, for by him after, these soldiers from all over the world. And as he sat with them, he noted, he said he was struck by the fact that after sitting with a stranger for a few minutes, it became clear to both of them that they already knew one another. It became clear to both of them that they already knew one another. And what he meant wasn't, hey, we've met before. It was, if we're in Christ, we know one another. If we're in Christ, even though we have different cultures, different national loyalties, uh, different customs, we know one another. What we share is deeper than those differences. And he would have this spark of recognition that the spirit in him recognizes and knows the, the, the spirit in the other, that the loyalties of one matched up with the loyalties of another. He reflected on this elsewhere, that he, one of his surest signs that he had come indeed to salvation uh, was when he recognized in himself as a young pastor who came from a wealthy upper-class uh, Welsh background who had been a doctor. So think about in a an English society that was far more stratified by social class than our own. When this kind of upper crust guy became a pastor in a small farming town, he said he came to realize that he would rather spend an evening in the pub with a farmer who he had nothing in common with than he would sit in the country club uh, with his schoolmates from his prep school. Because he came to realize he had more in common with those that he shared Christ with than those he did, that those he shared other stuff with in culture. As the gospel takes root in our hearts, it ought to lead to surprising friendships. As the gospel knits us together in an uncommon family, it ought to lead to surprising friendships. And so it's worth, just as a self-evaluation question, asking, has the gospel borne this fruit in your life? Right? If you made friendships that you wouldn't, you know, you would never probably say this to their face, but you would not be friends with them if you weren't in church together, right? Either you're a Democrat and they're a Republican and, and left, left to yourselves, you would just not have anything to do with each other and believe the worst about each other. But because of your participation in church together, you've come to a mutual respect and a care and a tenderness and a love. Or if you uh, come from a higher income background, if you befriended people, uh, in real, life-giving, respectful friendship who don't come from as much of a high-income bracket. If you are, you know, just think about the, the various cultures melding in our church. Have you allowed it to lead you beyond simply kind of sitting together under the tents and into genuine friendships of understanding and respect and love? And again, that's not, uh, that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's a gift of the gospel not something that we're called to, to have to drum up on our own. 
And then finally, living in this type of fellowship, oriented towards Jesus, oriented towards one another in life-sharing love, we see that they were also open to their neighbors. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Right? That it was a loving group, but it wasn't an insular group. It was a group that shared their life together, that shared their possessions, that shared their money, that shared their homes. And yet they didn't close outsiders out. They were adding new people in on a daily basis. As people looked at the life of the church and said, there's something different about those people. There's something different about that life. We're told that awe struck all of their neighbors as they looked at the church living their life together around Jesus Christ, sharing in his life with him. In the engine that makes all of this go, I think if you were to ask kind of what's the the one byline that runs through this, all of these verses. It's the praise of God, praising God and having favor with all the people. That worship, gratitude, thanksgiving to God for what he's done for us in Christ is the engine that drives the church's discipleship. We're worshiping disciples. It's what drives the church's outreach. It's what drives our witness, our sharing with others about Uh, Jesus, it's done not out of guilt or have to, but out of an overwhelming praise of the one that we have found to be more beautiful, more loving, and more glorious than anything this world can offer. It's the overflow of our hearts. C.S. Lewis put it this way about this dynamic of praise. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Right, the motive for Christian witness, the motive for Christian love of our neighbor is because our joy in Christ isn't complete until it's shared. Right, I remember uh, having friendships growing up uh, where we would literally, this is, this is going to age me a bit, um, where a buddy would get a tape, like, so that's what music was on before it was on computers. A buddy would get a tape or an album, and he would say, hey, dude, you gotta, I want you to come over and listen. you got to listen to the new Guns N' Roses album. Right? you got to listen uh, to whatever the new album is. And, and we would literally sit in his room and listen to music because joy, enjoyment of something, isn't complete until it's shared. Right now, it might be a buddy texting you, hey, you got to listen to this track and then sending it to you, or hey, have you, seen this, uh, have, you, have you seen this clip? It's hilarious and sending it to you. Right? There's something about enjoyment that isn't full, that's not consummated until it takes that next step that says, hey, you got to check this out. You need to hear this song. You need to meet these people. You need to understand what's going on here because it's different. Jesus is different. He's more beautiful and more amazing than you can possibly imagine. Come, check it out, be a part, taste of it. And that's the way that the church's witness uh, is meant to work, as we orient ourselves to Jesus, as we orient ourselves to one another, and then face out towards our neighbors. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do come to you uh, as a people who do desire to orient our lives with you at the center. Lord, any other center ultimately fails to hold us together. 
Any other hope ultimately disappoints. Any other source of love, and unity, and life uh, ultimately only leads uh, to factions. And so, Lord, we come together looking to you to teach us how to live. We look to you to help us to make sense out of our lives and out of our world. We look to you, uh, seeking as Mary to sit at your feet together as your disciples. And so, Lord Jesus, uh, Lord of our lives, Lord of our hearts, Lord of our church, we ask you to knit us together in the bonds of fellowship. Knit us together in that powerful koinonia, that sharing of life that we share with you and with one another. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.